You're listening to the official Dietitian Connection podcast. This podcast gives you access to the most successful and influential experts in the dietetic profession. This podcast will inspire you, it will challenge you, and it will empower you to become a nutrition leader and realize your dreams. Hello to all of our listeners and welcome to another great episode of the Dietitian Connection podcast. So our co-host Glenn Cardwell will be running this week's episode. Now Glenn is an advanced accredited practicing dietitian based in Perth and he got the opportunity to chat with Professor John Coveney who is the Dean of the School of Health Sciences at Flinders University in Adelaide. Earlier in his career, John worked in pediatric nutrition both in hospitals and public health, and he's published more than 150 papers, so authored a number of books such as Food, Morals and Meaning, and that's about the pleasure and anxiety of eating. He has research and education interests in public health nutrition, history of food and health, food policy, and social and cultural factors that influence food patterns and food intake. So let's join Glenn and John and a cheeky bird in a back garden in Perth. John started his working life as a printer and Glenn has just asked him how he got into university. And you've got to understand that I come from a socioeconomic background where I knew nobody who had been to university. I'm saying nobody, not even, there's this thing called first in family now, this is like first in the suburb. <laughs> Nobody ever went to university. Right. <laughs> it, they never did. So this was just beyond my wildest dreams. And I just thought, well, he must have the wrong person here because there's no way that that would ever happen to me. But it actually did. And he, this guy turned out to be quite a mentor for me to encourage me to um, study the right subjects because after, after this TAFE-like qualification that I got, I had to get another couple of qualifications a bit similar to year 12, a bit like going back to yeah. year 12. So he guided me and, um, and, and that was it. Um, I shall never ever be able to repay that man enough for that inspiration and that um, aspiration that he got. So what was it about nutrition that got you into that area? I was interested in food as um, not so much as a, an exploration of, of, of nutrients, I was actually more interested in food by way of cooking. But I knew that if I went down that path, I'd be uh, in a job with very antisocial hours of work. Yeah, yeah. You know, I actually did fancy myself as a bit of a chef, um, a sort of a, an early Jamie Oliver in a, in a way. I was very interested in food. I, I used to read cookbooks for fun, like, you know, and, and not um, ordinary cookbooks, but cookbooks written by people like Elizabeth David and, and, uh, and Jane Grigson, you know, they, these were books that were seriously good. They told real stories about food, and I, I loved it, and I would go and try the recipes. But I was quite good at, I was quite good at chemistry, and um, I managed to get myself into a, a course in nutrition without any other background, quite, quite weird, really. Um, so what took me to nutrition? Um, it was really an interest in food. Uh, I became interested in food and the body. Um, which is what kind of nutrition is. And I, I kind of took it from there. I mean, I never had an ambition to become a dietitian, to be honest with you. And that was always uh, something that um, I just kind of wandered into. Yeah, but so the course took me there. Yes, yes, of course. 
know, the accidental dietitian. The accidental. It's beautiful, yeah. I was going to say many of us are probably that. <laughs> and that bird is unrelenting, so yeah. excuse the background noise. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. Get the message. Now, when you, when you graduated, um, you then, I think, went to New Guinea. Yeah, so yeah, what, what I did. Kind of, what kind of things did you learn from New Guinea? Okay. Because you're um, dealing with people who speak Pidgin English, so you... I know you've got, you got you're fluent in pigeon English. I have. Yeah. <laughs> I have. I have. It's, it's the only other that's, language that's, that's other than right. English that I, I remember struggle you asked with. me things like, "Who belonged this?" Who belong <laughs> this? <laughs> yeah. Uh, New Guinea. What a magnificent experience that was. It taught me a couple of things. It taught me to be very, very humble because there I was in somebody else's culture, country, um, social milieu. And I was deeply humbled by that, that people could um, allow me the time and, and space to, to do that. That was great. The other thing you have to remember is that in New Guinea, a large proportion of the population are subsistence mm. um, farmers. Mm. They grow from, you know, they grow, they grow everything that they, they need. And they don't store it, actually. They, uh, they live on um, what we would kind of call... Um, uh, Fresh food, I guess, because they, they don't store very well the, the foods that they, they grow. Um, and so I learned a lot there about subsistence farming and subsistence agriculture. The other thing I learned there, because I was the first nutritionist in this province, Madang province, I was there to set up the service. I'm laughing because, you know, when I think now how ambitious that was, <laughs> it's just ridiculous. But it did teach me that I could probably do anything. I mean, seriously, there, I realized that there was a process that one went through when you were um, invited to do these massive pieces of work. I mean, simply masses. And I realized that there were small baby steps that you did. You know, first of all, you've got a plan. Secondly, you encourage others to buy into that plan. Yes, you shared yes. that plan. Yeah, that you know? comes critical, I think, in those cases. Yeah, it is. Yes. It's really, really important that you do that, that you, you don't try to charge them and do everything, anything on your own without... It's a bit like the way we work with Indigenous people here, you know. So, but it did teach me because some of the crazy things that we had to do in order to get people in order to buying in, you know, I would go to any length, unashamedly, to get the time and attention. I remember, of others, I remember at one time I was actually giving a performance with glove puppets, <laughs> one of which was Madam Cow Cow, which is sweet potato. Another one was uh, Mr. Kumu, which is oh. green leafy vegetables. <laughs> and there was a script that you read out, and there I was, tucked away behind a, an upturned table to give me my stage. With my glove puppets, Fantastic. it was just incredible. I, I, I would stop at nothing to get time and attention and therefore my agenda, as it were, into the face of others. So it taught me, it taught me that there's probably very few things that I couldn't do. I mean, I had to be very self-sufficient. But you, you have often had, you always had that, Educational bent. I remember. I mean, I met you at the Kids Hospital in Sydney, eighty-one. And do you remember Tucker Without Tantrums? Oh, <laughs> yeah. So, and Tucker Without Tantrums was was uh, a slideshow talking to parents about how to um, bring in new foods and and get your kids to to, to enjoy foods without having um, all this pressure of being the, the perfect parent. 
and you also the one called Grab It and Run. Which, <laughs> remember that? Which I, I still have a copy, John, believe it or not. And which uh, you did, I think that was for TAFE classes, wasn't it? It was, Where you yeah. could go and grab, okay, I'm going to talk about um, salt. Okay, I'll just grab that chapter and those slides and yeah. those ideas and yeah. that worksheet. Yeah. So, uh, and then, of course, I think you did uh, a master's in education. Yeah. yeah. So, so why, um, I mean, did you always feel right from the very beginning that you'd be an educator rather than necessarily an investigator? Yeah, what an interesting question. I think that my, I think possibly because of my own trajectory and the role that pedagogy and education have played in that, how it was very, very liberating, extraordinarily liberating. The only way that most people from the working class background are ever going to break through, you know, class structure through education. I think it was probably that that gave me the encouragement to use education to explore other intelligent things. Come back to a couple of words, talk about tantrums. You may remember how that arose. We were working in a hospital where there was, a, like, we would call it a health education group that gave things to community nurses. And we went out to the community nurses using this group to find out, uh, child care nurses, I think they were, what sorts of things parents were interested in. And we thought they'd be interested in sort of, uh, you know, what foods contain vitamin B1 yeah, and, you yes, know, all that. Yeah, we thought right. they were nutrients. But overwhelmingly, what came back, we were shocked by this. How do you feed fussy kids? Yeah. Because we had no, we had no experience in that whatsoever. Nothing, no, no. Ex we knew, you know, what nutrients were in what food, and we were well equipped to tell them that. But what came back was, well, we, you know, we're not even there yet. What we want to know is, how do you tell parents um, to manage? How do you tell parents to manage fussy eaters? And it's really interesting the way that that field has kind of exploded yes, now. You yes. know, with a with 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 um, all that Ellen Sater stuff, with you know, parents' role is to provide, uh, the child's role is to decide, and all that. So that was another example of listening to the field, listening to and carefully listening to what people said their real problems were, rather than us saying, "Oh, here's what you should do. Here's yes, what yes. you should." Uh, child health nurses, this is what you should be telling people. Um, it was a perfect example of listening to what people said were the problems out there and trying to respond to that in some way. And talk well, about tantrums yes. was, 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 was fun in, in many ways, wasn't it? You well, know? well, it was. It was great. It was very, very useful. I mean, we, remember, we've come, we came from a background of teaching, as you say, about nutrients. And so we go out to these, these parents and say, look, about expecting the question, so how many milligrams of calcium? <laughs> and of course, instead of going, how do I get my child to drink milk? How do I get my child to eat fruit or vegetables? So it became very practical. It, I did. And do you remember, Glenn, because you took part in this, we used to go on those road shows yes. with a pediatrician called yep. Chris Green, Chris Green yes. who had many, many books about toddler taming yep. and how to manage kids. And we would partner him and do the food section in yes. that because I know that yes. you did that. And that was a lot of fun because Chris was very, very funny. His his actual presentation was, was screamingly funny. He would have everybody rolling about in the aisles. And so when we come on and did our kind of, you know, here's how to feed kids, we, you know, they were warmed up and it was a good gig. What was funny from my perspective is, is that there was four dietitians working in the kids' hospital and none of us had kids. <laughs> Did we? I don't know how we got away with that. I, I, actually, I have this dream, this recurring dream, where I actually get transported back in time where I have to stand in front of them and say, look, I do apologise <laughs> for our really impractical 
and well, I, I, remember, I remember bringing this up a couple of times and some dietitians would get very snotty and say, well, we teach people about diabetes and we don't have that, we're, you know, we're not diabetic. So it's, it's a bit different, different here. Yeah. But I don't know how we actually got away with that. A number no. of times I thought I was going to get sort of lynched on the way out because you have <laughs> trivialised our problems so much. And how would you have any idea? I, have this, I do I have this vision that, of these parents going home, walking the door, shaking their head and going, clueless. The guy <laughs> No idea at all. And it's probably that in that regard that maybe to, to teach parents, you really had to be a parent to be to have that street cred, which we probably didn't. I mean, I know we worked on what people were feeding back to us. And yeah. Ideas were feeding back yeah. To us. Yeah. Um, but I think you have to. I think they're getting. I think you pay homage to people's experience. That's what you know. I think another way of recognizing that is is that. I'm going to really value the experience that you have as, as mm. parents. I'm not a parent, mm. or I wasn't then. I'm going to value that experience. And, you know, if I can work with you on what I know and what you know, we can probably come through this together. That sounds a bit kind of lofty, but you know what I mean? Yes. That, that's what co-education is yes. about. Now. Yeah, well, it's more of a part whole kind of notion of co-production, yeah. which is very much at the front of health services. Which I guess we have to realise. But, I mean, going back to talking about the... You know, that we didn't have, neither of us had diabetes when we were talking to kids with diabetes. I mean, you probably did this too. I mean, I was uh, uh, going through injections, doing blood glucose yeah. levels, I mean, doing pretend. On ourselves, yeah, yeah, we were. I remember eating, that. You know, three portions for oh, breakfast, that kind of that stuff. That was hard work, wasn't it? Was. it? And yeah. I still remember sitting down at a restaurant, getting agitated because um, I'd had my injection, <laughs> yes. commas. Half an hour beforehand, and when's my first bit of carbs? And I, putting my hand up, I said, "Can you please give me some bread?" You know, because yeah, this my brain said I'll hypo very soon. Well, that was because we went through a very enlightened diabetes education program for for for, for health professionals, mm. you know, and and well, I did, and they made us do that, and that was very that was very eye opening. Mm. Yeah. So three or four decades down the track, mm. and you look at say. Let's just look at the profession of, of, of dietetics. Where do you think it needs a shake-up and where do you think uh, it should go or, yeah. or could go? It's interesting because um, I've been thinking about this recently um, just because some work I've been doing, uh, publishing and things like that. The history of dietetics is extremely important. It's, it's very, very important. Hardly anybody gets to tell the story mm. because what they do is they conflate it with the history of nutrition and the discovery of nutrients. So they usually start the story with Wilbur Atwater um, and his calorie machine and all that. And that's the history of nutrition. The history of dietetics goes back so much further than that, so much further. And this came to my mind recently when I was in Cyprus and I went to an ancient site called the Kition, which is just next to uh, a little town, large town called Larnaca. And somebody had reconstructed what this old site was. And it, it's, 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 you know, like a diorama where it shows you what the buildings were like. And the thing that struck me about this was the amount of architecture and social life that revolved around food. Mm, mm. <laughs> food was central to mm. the lives of these people, absolutely central. Um, places where you, you stored it, places where you, you sold it, where you bought it. And when you think about it, in, in not that long ago, because the food supply was so precarious, it wasn't something you could guarantee 
you simply had to pay attention mm. to it. So as well as building places to store it, you also had icons that you paid homage to, <laughs> that you prayed to in order to get the next harvest, mm. you know. So the centrality of food mm. in people's lives is just beyond our comprehension today. It really is beyond our comprehension. But with that centrality of food was a raft of people who would give advice about food, dietitians. And the role of the dietitian in the Renaissance, you know, so we're talking the 15th century and the 16th century, and even before, the role of the dietitian who provided advice about food was absolutely crucial. Now, what you had at that time was a system of medicine which was based on the, the humours. There was a belief that the body had four humours. Mm -hmm. You know, there was, there was blood, there was black bile, there was yellow bile, and there was... I what the fourth, the fourth one, one was. Yeah, the fourth one. I always miss the fourth one. And you, you had to balance these in order to be well or be ill. And the thing that balanced them the thing that influenced the humours was your food. The food you ate changed the balance of the humours. So if you wanted to give somebody advice about their gout, you would, for example, tell them to eat fewer foods that created blood mm. and more foods that created yellow bile. I mean, it was a crazy kind of system because well, it wasn't a, based on empiricism. Well, was it still in the, in the Eastern culture, that, that yin and yang? That yin and yang, yang. yeah. Cold, yes. Yeah. So... This was huge. We can't imagine how big this, I'm going to put industry in inverted mm. quotes, how big this industry was. It was absolutely huge because it was the only medicine, in quotes, that, mm. people, that people had. So the role of this person, which I'll call the dietitian, was crucial. Now, this was mostly for the bourgeoisie. It mm. wasn't necessarily something that poor people could have because they didn't really have a food selection. But nevertheless, and it was massive. And when printing <laughs> exploded the possibility of books. The number of books mm. about, about what to eat, how to eat, when to eat mm. was absolutely crucial. Now, so, so I, what do I where do I think dietetics should go? It should recognize continuously and continually the centrality of food to our life. We marginalize it now because we have control of our mm. food supply. We can now control the, the kind of food and the amount of food we have. And that is so recent. Uh, that's only been possible, really, for the last 60 or 70 years. After the Second World War, many European countries said, ah, look, the Second World War was such a difficult time because there were, you know, food supply shrank. Mm. Um, and so after the Second World War, a lot of economists, especially countries like the UK, got into food production big time. We're going to produce food. And, and a guy called Tim Lang writes about this yeah. very, very well. So it's only relatively recently that we've had control of food. Again, it's, and, and the amount of food that we can buy with a small amount of money, again, is boggling. I mean, well, in the, it was only that about, so about we, 100 years yeah. ago, food was very expensive. Well, now we've created this efficiency. So as you say, it's now such a, a relatively small proportion of uh, income. Well, 12%. 12% of household expenditure. And what was on World food. War II? It was something like 35 oh, yeah. or 40%. And, and at the end of the, at the, end of the, uh, the, end of the, the 19th century, it was like 63, 64% of household income would right. be spent on food. So you, you were very food-minded. You were very, very... But now, 
it's 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 become such a small part of people's purse, if you like. No wonder we waste food because you think, oh, big deal, you know, we just buy some more. And with, I, th- I think we've actually, I actually think that we've lost the whole idea of food, and we do need to regain it, and we have to, we have to put food, food central. Mm. Well, you talk about the waste. I mean, is what are we looking now? Forty-five percent, fifty percent. It seems almost incomprehensible that we can grow this much so efficiently and affordable and yet cost so much away. It's, it's wicked, and, really. Well, it is. But you, you're right in, in getting um, dietitians to have a central role in making food or getting us to think more personally about food yeah. rather than popping down the supermarket. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think there's this other aspect. So, you know, my role there would be to say food is central to our social and our cultural well-being. But, but there's something else that blew me away. I only thought about it recently, and I thought, wow, we hardly ever celebrate this. So if you think about your hands, Glenn, your, um, the cells on your hands now weren't there two days ago. Yeah. They weren't right. there, and yet they're there now. So what replenishes your body on a daily, hourly basis? Yeah. It's food. It's what you're, yeah. The nutrients in food become the substrates for for our body and you know when you think about that that is an amazing process that so it's you know it's is a bit of oxygen of course and a bit of water but principally it's the food that we eat that replenishes us and it, if you imagine that again it brings back for me the centrality of food to not just who we are but what we are and I, I think that that's an amazing insight well remember John that uh um, one thing, one question you got me to appreciate more, got me to ask more, was a simple question, which was why? Mm. Single word, question mark. And when you use it, you realize that um, the fallback position is uh, another comment and you ask them why a second time. Mm. Why twice? So you can see them struggle. Mm. Or they often use that uh, that absolutely awful default position of, oh, I read it somewhere, you know, like, okay, well, that, that justifies everything you're about to say. Um, so you taught me to be far more inquiring. So how do you get that across to the students and the people that you work with? Mm-hmm. I often show them something that was taken for granted in the past. I've got this marvellous video of a children's um, TV program that went to air in 1955. And the way that it positions kids, there's no kids in this, it's mm. this woman sitting there with this magnificent dress on with these rounded vowels because it comes from the UK. <laughs> and, she's, and she's looking at the screen and saying, oh, hello, children. And one of her sidekicks is this, this puppet dog. You can even see the strings, it's so bleeding obvious. And the dog is obviously a kind of representation of, of kids. And she said, oh, stop it, Spot. You'll get that glue all over you. She's making magic lanterns, Chinese lanterns. And, and I show this to people, and we fall about laughing. And then I show them um, play school right. with Noni. No, 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 you know, with, um, what was her name? Anyway, George and whoever, Monica. And they're rolling about. And I said, now, let's have a look at the difference here. What, what's going on here? You know, 
this was a, in 1955, this was a perfectly ordinary way of treating and managing children. Now we move to sort of, you know, 2011, and what's going on here? And when will we look back at George and, and Monica yeah. and fall about laughing, saying, <laughs> look at what they used to do to kids? The point of the story is to allow us to appreciate what was normal and look at what is normal today and question it and right. say, when will we look at what is taken for granted today and say, why on earth were we yeah. thinking like that? Well, what was the, what were the normalising <laughs> factors that made us do that? Do you know what I mean, Glenn? I, I do, because I'm thinking uh, portions. You know, why do we do Why do we have 15 grand portions? Well, we always have 15 <laughs> grand portions. Like, do not question it. And, yes. Yes. and then, of course, it all changes. Yes. You, know, you know, when the glycemic index becomes all the rage from yes. 86, 87 yes. onwards. So showing people a bit of history and letting them understand what was taken for granted, what was normal um, in the past and how how comical we find that sometimes mm. and the things I show people do make that comical. And, and therefore that requires us today to ask the question, what is it that gives us confidence and trust and faith that what we're doing today is actually the best thing? And, and so I'm very much in favour of this process which I think people call reflexivity. Um, which is being critical of your own practice mm, mm. And, and creating that in our students and our early practitioners is really, really important mm. so that they, they don't have to question everything mm. but give them a sense of inquiry, yes. um, I think, and support them in that and um, allow them to ask questions and give them the space to ask mm. questions. A lot of people feel that they can't ask questions because they're in an environment which has closed down any sense of inquiry. And, and I think dietetics is very bad at that. Mm. I think there's, there often is a, a law out there, L-O-R-E, yep. that um, really uh, suffocates um, critical inquiry. And so I fully subscribe to a movement called Critical Dietetics, which is a group of people who have taken it upon themselves to not rubbish dietetics, but to ask another yes. set of questions, yes. just a completely different set of questions, which are complementary to the practice of dietetics. And, uh, and I think critical dietetics, because of the people who it has recruited in that process, is crucial to the ongoing maintenance of mm. mainstream mm. dietetics. Mm. Yeah. When you've all through your working life, you've either been studying, as I said, you've done your dietetics, you've got your masters, you've done a doctorate, you're now uh, a professor, but also you have um, been teaching all the way through there. Now that you've got a, a high position at um, Flinders University, mm. how do you see your role at Flinders um, influencing either teaching or education mm. within that institution? Mm. Mm. We've, um, so the school is two years old, actually. We celebrate our second birthday in about, about two weeks' time. And one of the things I did right at the beginning was to work with the leaders in my school to, you know, do that strategic planning stuff, mm. which, we, which you, is sometimes very hollow because you kind of mm. do that stuff and just put it on the shelf. Mm. But we did this with, with meaning and, and, and with... You know, a genuine attempt to make this a foundation. So we, we worked a lot on what our mission was and what we thought um, our values were. Um, 
and and out of that came, I think, a mutual respect for um, research, for 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 education, or for teaching and learning, um, for community engagement. So I think what I try to do there is to um, make sure that the the kinds of things that we put into our our, our, our work are things that are really going to make a difference. And they make a difference because, coming back to what I was saying earlier, they make a difference because we're listening to people who, in the end, will be the recipients mm. of our healthcare, mm. um, both the people who will be consumers of it and the people who will be providers of it. So I'm a big fan of people in my school, which is a school where there are a lot of allied health professions making contact with their, their own individual yeah. professions. So my philosophy is to be as, um, as inclusive as possible, um, as inquiring as possible, um, and I, I suppose as um, ethical as possible, because in all of that you do have to be clear about what sort of things you can do as a practitioner and what sort of things you simply can't do. And I do worry about dietetics. I deeply worry about dietetics in the sense that I think some of the things that we practice are not only ineffective, but they could be downright dangerous. And I, I, I mean that in all genuine sincerity. So I think that when we dabble with people's food and their eating habits, we better be very clear that what we're doing here is going to work because we could be sending people into a spiral, for example, of... Um, like an eating disorder? Yeah, 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 yeah. I am. I'm thinking, you know, the way we, 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 we might encourage weight control or something like that could mm. easily send people into a yo-yo where they, they gain, they lose, they gain, they lose. And yeah. they've got, now they've got a problem that they actually didn't have before they yes, came to yes. us. You know? Yeah, that's right. You know what I mean? Right, yes, so we've given them the problem. a problem. Yeah. And I, I, think that that's, I think that that's terrible. Um, the other thing that I think that we fail to do as a profession is this. Food, if we're going to be meaningful about the centrality of food, we've got to be understanding about what that means in a social milieu. So when, for example, we encourage people not to smoke, it's perfectly reasonable to have an interview with them one-on-one -on -one and teach them some skills of, about how to you know, cut down on smoking, nicotine patches and all the rest of it. If we want to teach people a singular activity, it's perfectly possible to do that. You can't do that with food. Food is not amenable in that way. If I say to you, Glenn, okay, I'm going to counsel you about your eating habits, you then have to go and put yourself back into a family menu where either you get treated differently to everybody else or everybody else has to come on board yes. with your eating habits. So one of the reasons why things are so difficult to change when in, a, in, a, in their individual practices is because we're counselling people one-on-one -on -one without real recognition of the social milieu in yes. which that change has to take place. You know, And when I think about it like that, we shouldn't be counselling people one-on-one. -on -one. We should have, uh, well, not the whole family there, but we should certainly have a representation mm. of who is going to be important in the kind of eating experience of that family. Does that make sense? Well, it does because you're saying that you've got to think of uh, their the cultural background, their whole belief system, um, how the, they've been influenced by their parents in their eating, all of that that's uh, probably best represented by one lady I met who said that um, 
uh, after I gave, gave a presentation, said, do you know what? The only, I could only start eating pumpkin once my dad had died. <laughs> and then you just, yeah, and then you just realised that uh, <laughs> you know, probably the anguish you'd gone through eating pumpkin as a kid, yes, you yes, know? And, yes. And it was only when, when the, the source of the problem had, she knew no longer existed that she felt comfortable going back and trying the pumpkin she feared for so long. Anyway. I want to say something here sure, that's John. kind of uh, not on your question sheet, and it's the role that you've played in my career. Oh, okay, go on. You well, you've been an inspiration. I mean, you really have in so many ways. Uh, your ability to be creative with not just the food ideas, but actually articulating them in the written form. You're a brilliant writer. No, oh, thank you. A really, really brilliant writer, and you communicate so well on the, on the page. More than that, you also communicate so beautifully on the stage. <laughs> and I think that your ability to perform, if I can use that, that term, your ability to perform and engage people in ideas about food is so wonderfully exemplary. I, I, I don't give it now, which is a shame, but I used to give a three-hour workshop on large group communication, you know, which is basically public speaking. And I always paid homage <laughs> to you. Um, in fact, I think I pinched some of the notes that you did for a, a workshop that you ran here. I always give you acknowledgement of that, but I, I don't know whether this is true, but I understand there is a performance you give where you, 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 you come out juggling junk food and you juggle in, um, you manage to kind of juggle in fresh food, fresh fruit oh. and veg or something. So you're juggling Mars bars and crunchy bars and then suddenly, you know, in come the, uh, in come yeah. the oranges and bananas. I don't know, I might no, have no, that. No, no, it's probably a dream that you well, had. I, yeah, but, but I do, but I do right. tell the students that when I say, you know, this guy will go to any length, any, any length to, to, get a tire, to get some uh. of his attention. So you've been extraordinarily important in that. I mean that, Glenn. Oh, uh, I think you're just a magnificent well, communicator. Well, there's a, there's a certain artistry and we forget that, isn't it? That it's, we get locked into the science and the, um, you know, is the, is the peer-reviewed data to, to prove that and go, well, hang on, how, what is the artistry in which we can communicate this? And John, we're coming to the end of this, this conversation, but um, one last thing I just want to ask you is, um, I remember having lunch with you and, uh, I mean, we both know we're coming to a time when uh, there's this thing called retirement. Mm. is coming up, either it's said or unsaid. Um, and you said uh, really that independent of that, it was really your capacity, yes, you need the capacity to function in whatever role that mm. it was. And you basically said, look, I still have the capacity. So in other words, there's no um, idea of this thing called retirement or winding down or whatever. So... Um, I mean, you say you've now got a capacity. What is the what is the the John Coveney future in a in a in a, a few potted sentences? Mm, 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 mm. Um, as I move into the more mature end of my life, of course, <laughs> you're very experienced. I, not, I, I want to challenge the whole notion of aging. Yes, I actually want to do away with the word aging. The word that comes to mind is ripening. <laughs> I believe right. now that I am just perfectly right. That might sound very conceited, but I've never been so wise. I've never All been right. so fit. Well, I've never funny. been so yes. confident. Yes. It's funny, isn't it, that as it comes along, you do. You just think, 
I can still ride my bike X kilometres or run half a marathon or whatever. Yeah, it's, and just, it's just amazing. Right. It's, 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 and the confidence that comes yeah. with that. Um, and I hope there's no arrogance. I, think, I hope there's a, no. a, a big dollop of humility. So what's coming? I believe what – and this is not just the John Coveney gig – but I'm part of a generation which is loosely called the baby boomers. And believe me, as the baby boomers start to move through this period of ripening, the world, especially in the Western world, will change because this is a group that have constantly changed the world. They seriously have. And they will continue to do that because these are people who normally get their own way. They have nothing to do with the present depiction or oh, aging, oh, aging yeah. which is usually you know clubs yeah, yeah. Or, or what's going to yeah, happen yeah. I mean you know we're only going to go for those <laughs> if they are sort of you know unclad bowling or something <laughs> like that aren't we we're not going to go to bowling no. clubs no no and usually today's image of the older people is you know he's standing behind her he's got a comb over it's all yeah. grey she's got a perm and a twin set and they're grinning at the camera it's going to be nothing like that it really no. is not it's going to be such a great gig because these are people who, you know, made up the 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 the, the, the culture, yeah. the, the popular culture. They made it up. Of course, there was a lot of industry that took advantage of it, and that will still happen. But these are the people with ideas. They've got very pointy elbows, and they will actually create a a life for older people, for people who are ripening it, that's going to be gobsmackingly beautiful. So, John, on that note, um, how about you and I make a date to go and see the Rolling Stones 2030? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> That'll still be going, mate. That'll still be going. Okay, and it's back to Kate in the studio. Thanks, Kate. Thanks, Glenn, and thank you to John as well for giving us an insight into the wonderful work that you are doing. So we'll have some additional resources and the key points from this episode available on our show notes, and that'll be at dietitianconnection.com slash podcasts. And I'd also like to say thank you to all of our dedicated listeners for tuning in today. I hope you enjoyed the episode and that it was able to provide value to you. And if you did, it would be much appreciated if you could leave a review for us and also pass this podcast on to your colleagues and friends. And also don't forget to subscribe to the Dietitian Connection podcast so that you can automatically get the new episode each week. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time for another great episode of the Dietitian Connection podcast.